And tonight we're hopefully going to complete our study of the 11th chapter of Matthew's Gospel. And at this point uh, where we are <clears throat> with Matthew's Gospel, um, Jesus has worked many mighty miracles in the sight of many, uh, most pointedly in this chapter, uh, the followers of John the Baptist, and they were sent to him. <clears throat> Uh, and by these miracles, he proved to be the Messiah. He's also denounced the hard-heartedness of many in Israel, pointing out that uh, they wouldn't accept the truth regardless of what form or style in which it was delivered. If you remember, John came neither eating or drinking. He was about as stoic and about as strict to the standard of the law as you could possibly be. And they called John demon-possessed, and Jesus came both eating and drinking and they called him a, a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors. Then we pick up in verse 25, which says, At that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Let's pray once more. Father, I want to thank you so much for this, uh, this evening. I pray that right now you'll speak to our hearts by your word. Father, I pray that you will... Um, Father, just please use me um, to, as a mouthpiece to, to speak what you want to say. And I pray that we will be edified, that we'll be exhorted, and we'll be consoled where we need to be uh, uplifted and where we need to be encouraged and where we need to be challenged. Lord, I pray that you'll be glorified by this because you're worth more than anything else. In Jesus' name we pray, Father. Amen. Now, it seems befuddling, I imagine, to some people um, how someone could hear the gospel preached, not by, you know, a bad preacher like, say, me, uh, but by Jesus himself. And by the way, I like how some of y'all grinned in agreement. That was very rude, but okay. Um, <clears throat> maybe y'all need to go back to Kyle's lesson about love. That wasn't it, but, you know, okay. Whatever. Anyway, um, but it seems kind of confusing how somebody could hear the gospel preached by none other than Jesus himself and see the great miracles that he did, the healing of the leper, the raising of the dead, the casting out of demons, the, the healing of the lame and the blind, all these things, and still not believe the gospel that was being preached. But in this verse, verse 25, we see that Jesus explains that many who heard and saw such things didn't receive it or didn't believe it because God the Father had, as Jesus said, hidden these things from them. He had hidden these things. Now this causes some people a great deal of consternation. Um, the question is, why would God hide the truth from anyone? Because we think, why would God do that? That seems counterintuitive that God would hide the truth from anyone. When, when you say that God hides the truth from someone, a lot of people are going to bristle to the idea that God would actively block a person from the truth. But that's just a mischaracterization of what's really going on. When we say that God has hidden the truth from someone, we mean that God has simply left them in their current darkness. Um, biblically speaking, every human is born in a state of spiritual darkness. And everybody that's ever been born again, they've been delivered out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. Peter points that out in his first epistle to the believers when he commands believers to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. 
God's hiding of the truth is a passive action of his sovereignty. When Jesus points out that God has hidden the truth of his identity, or what I mean, Jesus's identity from the wise and understanding, what he's doing is he's acknowledging that these have always been too wise in their own eyes to surrender to his teachings and that God has just simply left them as he found them. It's not that God actively went and put put blinders on them that weren't there before. It was that they were blinded by their own sinful pride and wickedness, by their own depraved nature, by their own hardness of heart that they were born with and that you were born with and that I was born with and every human being that's ever been born was born with. And he just simply didn't take those blinders off. That's what is meant when it says that God has hidden these things. It's as Jesus said to the Pharisees in John chapter 9, he said, if you were blind, meaning if you knew you were blind, if you understood that you didn't understand, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Who is it that knows that they aren't wise? Who knows that they have more questions than understanding? I'm not asking people to raise their hand. I mean, in general, in society, in uh, the grand scheme of humanity, what group is it that most often not only knows, but will more readily accept the idea that they don't have it all figured out? It's children. Children do. Those of us that are school teachers in here, kids don't have any problem raising their hands and asking a question, do they? But you let a bunch of adults get in a class somewhere, maybe a Uh, a professional training, or even if you go back to college as an adult, unless you're somebody that has just really dealt with um, your pride and your insecurities and all that kind of stuff, and you're being very intentional about those things, adults are the hardest people to get them to raise their hand and ask a question in front of other people. Why is that? Because none of us want to look like we don't understand. None of us want to look like we don't know. Why? Because we're prideful. Children aren't that way. It's children that accept their blindness. And Jesus says that God reveals the truth to little children. Now, does that mean that only physical children were saved? Well, obviously not. I mean, the disciples weren't children. They, they, were, they were saved by the Lord. It doesn't mean that. Jesus is referring to the condition of the heart. Those who had seen and understood and believed the truth were those who came to Jesus as little children. They came helpless like little children. They came needy like little children. They came sensing their own lack. And just as importantly, they came trusting that God would supply them with the mercy that they needed. Those of us that have little children in here, um, you understand your child has no qualms about admitting that they're in need, right? In the middle of the night, what do they do, cat? Yeah, and ask for milk, or in my house, they scream bloody murder. They're not timid about saying, I need you. They scream. They're bold. There's an importunity about it. They're not hiding it. But they're also very confident that you are going to jump up and meet that need. To the point that if you don't quick enough, they scream louder. All night. I'm speaking from my own horror stories now, from the first year of Brianna's life in existence. Everybody started telling me when we got when we were 
going to have Bree. Everybody's like, oh, you'll never sleep again. And she fooled us. First week or two, she slept. Eh, okay, we got about four hours a night. And then all of a sudden, it happened. Something flipped. And all of a sudden, she decided whatever she's going to do as a living, she's going to work the night shift. I know, because she stayed up all night and slept all day. And Melanie and I are walking around looking like we got Brother Rudy's age real quick. Bags under her eyes. I'm stumbling around. I even started talking in a German accent. It was terrible. Melanie, your lovey-dovey needs you. Now, if you're listening on the podcast, you need to come to My First Baptist and meet Rudy so you'll understand that joke. It'll be worth the trip, I promise you. But anyway, kids understand that they're needed. And they, they don't mind expressing their need because they trust that whoever's responsible for them is going to meet that need. So does this mean that some who heard Jesus preach were by nature more childlike than others? I don't mean childish. This isn't a slam. There's a difference between childlike and childish. We got childish running out our ears. Childlike is a respectable condition. Childlike is a biblically right condition. Does this mean that some people, just by nature, just by birth, they were more childlike and thereby more acceptable to God than other people? No. As we just said, all humans are born as children of the dark. So how does anyone go from being blinded by sinful pride, the condition that we're all born into by nature, to being childlike and able to receive the truth? To understand the answer to that question is to understand the work of God in drawing men. And that's what I believe Jesus is getting at here. The Bible teaches us that the gospel call has gone out to all men. Jesus says in Matthew 22, many are called, but few are chosen. So why is it that some accept the gospel call while others continue to reject it for a long time or maybe even their entire life? How many people have been raised in... Um, in the South, in a church setting, how many people uh, were taken to church their entire life as a child and they sat right by a sibling and they heard the same preaching and they're raised by the same parents and one ends up at some point in their life accepting the gospel, humbling themselves and becoming a born-again child of God and the other one doesn't. Why is that? Is one person just better than the other? Is one, does one person have some innate goodness inside them that the other just does not have? Well, no. Here, we might differentiate between the general call and the effectual call of God. All people are called um, in that many hear the, the message of the gospel. Everybody that's ever heard the message of the gospel has been called in some sense. When you hear the gospel, that is a call. But that's a general call, and it goes out to everybody in the entire world who could, who could possibly physically have the vibrations of the gospel message rattle across their eardrum. Those who reject the teachings of, that, of Jesus heard what he said, and they saw the miracles, and even more than that, they understood exactly what he was saying to the point that they hated him for it. Only those whom God had predestined for salvation will receive what we call the effectual call. Those will hear and they'll believe and they'll be justified. Now this idea, before everybody gets antsy, this idea of predestination um, where God calls certain people to salvation, I think it's very misunderstood. I think most people that reject it 
You know, and if you're like me, I was raised in churches that, you know, everybody kind of totally rejected the idea as if they wished God had not put the word predestined or elect in the Bible. And you, you go to youth group and they're preaching on, like, say, Romans, where it says whom God foreknew he predestined. And as soon as they say it, they got to start giving all their weird, made up ideas about what predestined has to mean because it can't mean what it really means. I think it's just because we misunderstand how that works. And if we understood how it really works, this truth of the gospel would melt our hearts toward Jesus more and more. It would cause us to love him more and more. The more we thought about it and the more it overtook our hearts. So very quickly, I want to speak to a few misunderstandings that I know I hear all the time whenever this topic comes up. The first one is that if God chooses some to be saved and doesn't choose others, that makes God less loving. You'll hear that objection. And I reject that, and the Bible rejects that. Um, Jesus plainly says here that God has hidden the truth from some and revealed it to others. Regardless of what you and I want to think about this topic, he said, Father, you have hidden the truth from these, and you have revealed it to these. That's not up for debate. Jesus said that. It's true. It happened. we got to deal with it. And then he says in verse 26, he points out that that's not being ungracious or unloving at all. In fact, he says, yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. So hiding and revealing both gracious. It's his will. To say that God is unloving because he doesn't save everyone is to totally overlook the grace of God in saving anyone. It's, it's a very arrogant and man-centered view. Now, I want to give you something to think about. When you're talking about God's sovereignty and salvation, you basically have four logical options that you can go with. One, your first option is to believe that God is going to save everybody. You're a universalist and nobody's going to go to hell. Everybody goes to heaven. But we know that, obviously, the Bible does not teach that. The Bible tells us there will be people in hell. The other, The second option is to believe that God doesn't save anybody. Everybody goes to hell. Well, we also know that's equally untrue because the Bible tells us there will be some who will be in heaven. So then you're really down to your third and fourth option, and here they are. Your third option is to believe that God made salvation available to everybody, but he doesn't guarantee that a single person is going to accept it. And your fourth option is to believe that God guarantees that a certain group of people will be saved while, the, uh, while another group, he doesn't guarantee that. Now, which, if I were to ask you the question, which one of those last two options made God more loving, I'm sure a lot of people and a lot more people outside these walls would probably say, well, the third option, because he makes it available to everybody. But that, that just shows a misunderstanding of Scripture and the human condition. You know, the Bible plainly tells us that if God did not guarantee that some would be saved and choose Christ, nobody would choose Christ and nobody would be saved. The Bible tells us that we are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And he says in Romans 3 that no one understands, no one seeks for God. We by nature do not seek God. We by nature do not love God. We by nature do not want God. And you really know that, and I really know that. We all know that down in our heart because all of us are sinners. And there was a point in time in all of our lives, even if you're born again in this place, where we saw our sin and we wished that we could have our sin and God didn't have a problem with it. And we hated the idea that he did. 
The Bible makes it clear that left to ourselves, no one would choose God. The most loving thing that God can do is to guarantee to change the hearts of some of those who would never choose him on their own so that they would be saved. See, the question should not be, why doesn't God save everyone? The question should be, why does God save anybody? Would there be a person here that would be so arrogant and so deceived to think, yes, I deserve to be saved? I would hope nobody would ever be so foolish or so dense or so blind to their sinfulness and the holiness of God that they would say, yeah, I mean, God owes me that. I should be saved. I'm a good person. You might think you're good, but you're not good enough to make God say, yes, you, be you belong in heaven on your own. Also, Many will agree that God is sovereign in salvation, but he chooses based on the fact that he knows what choice a person will make ahead of time. There's, a, there's kind of a, a well-circulated idea about predestination. It's kind of, they kind of, you know, you kind of accept predestination and you kind of don't, um, where people think, yes, God predestines people for salvation before the foundation of the world. However, he predestined the people that he knew that if they were to hear the gospel, there was just enough good in them that they would hear it and decide for it and accept it. Um, Jesus just happens to destroy that argument and shatter it all to pieces in verse 21. If you remember, he said, Woe to you, Chorazin, and woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. If God chose, based on what choice we would make, Tyre and Sidon would have heard the gospel and the miracles would have been done there because God knew they would believe and repent. But were the miracles done there? No. So that, that, that argument just doesn't hold water. It's, it's again, a man-centered argument. And lastly, some think that God's electing men for salvation somehow takes away our responsibility in the matter. And I think this is probably the most predominant one. I think this is the one that kind of causes the most kickback in our soul a little bit when we hear these things. Um, and people that, and that's what we're going to talk about for the next few minutes, people that believe that, they have a misunderstanding which tells them that if salvation is based solely on God's choice, then when he chooses to save a person, they become some kind of mindless robot. Um, when, when they hear about God electing people or choosing people for salvation or drawing men to salvation, their mind clicks over to, okay, God takes away all of your choice, he takes away all of your will, and you just become a pre-programmed machine, you have no choice in it, you just mindlessly go with it. And that's just not true. They think that we lose all reasoning ability and all choice in the matter. So we also lose the opportunity to choose Christ and to make a decision that is loving toward him. I had a conversation with someone not too long ago and they said, yeah, I believe that God chooses people for salvation, but not like you do because I don't believe that God would uh, take away my choice so that you know, because if it was kind of a forced thing, then that's not love. And, and you know, I want to make a, I believe we should make a loving choice toward Christ. And that attitude is the one I'm kind of talking about. That's just a misunderstanding of how God works. That's a total misunderstanding of how God works. Guys, it's not like that. Um, to understand this phenomenon rightly, we need to understand it not from man's perspective, but from God's perspective. So let's, 
Let's switch our view for just a second and let's stop thinking about this topic or any topic from our point of view. Let's think about it if we can from God's point of view. Because really everything should be from God's point of view. He's the one that was here before there was even empty space. In the beginning, it was just him and he was totally satisfied with himself. He was totally joyful in himself. He had no need, no lack. And because he's good, he just decided to create. And he decided to create you and I so that he could turn us around. We see his glory, see his perfection, and we get to enjoy him. He created us to get to enjoy him for eternity. So let's stop looking from our perspective. Let's look from a higher perspective. Let's look for his. Um, Jesus goes on to say, all things have been handed down over to me by my father. Excuse me. All things have been handed over to me by my father and no one knows the son except the father and no one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. When Jesus says that all things have been handed over to him. Uh, Brother Tony talked about it briefly this morning. Um, he's saying this because of the guarantee from his father. From eternity past, all things belonged totally to the son. He created all things. He's always held things together. He always will hold things together. They belong to him because he brought them into being. However, in order to come to earth and save his people, the son committed what theologians call kenosis, self-robbery. Um, if you look in uh, Philippians 2, you see that Jesus, for lack of a better way of expressing it, Jesus for a time chose to lay aside, let's say, his God powers, his omniscience, his omnipresence, his omnipotence. He laid these things aside and he robbed himself of all that for a time to come and wrap himself in human flesh and become the God-man. And when he did that, he not only robbed himself of all of his heavenly powers, he also robbed himself of all of his infinite possessions. He became poor to the point that he was born in a manger. He became vulnerable. My brother Tony said this morning, he, I'm sure Jesus was at times sick at his stomach. He was a baby and they had to change his diapers. He, he gave up all of his glory and all of his infinite possessions for a time and for a specific purpose. However, when he makes this statement, verse 27, he says this based on the fact that in the heart and mind of God, the completion of his work on this earth was a fact. Um, there was no doubt that he was going to live the perfect life. There was no doubt that he was going to die on the cross under the, the wrath of God for the sins and transgressions and iniquities of his people. And there was no doubt that he was going to rise again from the dead and that he was going to be again glorified and ascended up to heaven and sit at the right hand of God the Father. Um, he assured, he's assured to receive back all that he surrendered this time, not just because he created it and he owns it rightly, but because he came and as a man did what none of us could ever hope to dream to do. He earned it back. You and I can't earn one single cotton picking thing from God other than wrath. And he earned back all of heaven. He's just better than us. And the Bible tells us about the fact of how uh, assured this was or how this went about in Philippians 2, starting in verse 8, it says, and be, talking of Jesus, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. 
And in Hebrews 2, we see in verse 7, You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Just like we don't at this particular moment see that the entire universe is totally under the control of God. If we look around the world, we see so much wickedness and so much rampant uh, lawlessness that you could pose the question, does God really run this? And the answer is, yes, he runs it. What's he doing? He is sitting on the throne as the sovereign God, storing up holy wrath for all who would reject his name and live in such a way. That's how he is sovereignly choosing to rule over, rule over his creation right now. But none of us have a question, I hope, in this place, that one day Christ will return and his sovereignty over creation will be totally recognized. We believe it to be true now, though we don't see the full end result of it yet because we know we will. And in the same way, Jesus said, my father's handed everything over to me. Even though we don't see it on that day in Matthew 11, it wasn't obvious to the naked human eye that it had already been done. In the heart and mind of God, it was already a done fact. It just hadn't arrived yet. And one of the most obvious possessions delivered to Christ, when we say that everything was delivered over to him, when we say that he has taken possession of all things, one of the most obvious possessions delivered over to Christ as a result of his victory in the flesh is the church. It's you and me. It's the church, his people, his bride, the ones for which he came to die. In Colossians 1.18, it says of Jesus, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and in everything, excuse me, that and everything he might be preeminent. Also, we hear Jesus praying to his father in John 17, saying, Glorify your son that your son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of this world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. The church belongs to Christ. Jesus is the head of the church. We totally belong to him. We don't belong to a pope. We don't belong to a pastor. We don't belong to an organization. We belong to one, and that is Jesus. Totally, completely, period, paragraph. And when Jesus says that no one knows the Son except the Father, he obviously doesn't mean that nobody knew of Jesus of Nazareth except God. Everyone in Nazareth knew of Jesus. And they accepted him as Joseph, the carpenter's son. It's not even that they didn't hear Jesus' message that he was the Messiah. On that day when he went into the, the synagogue there in Nazareth and he took the scroll of Isaiah and he opened it up and he read the prophecy of himself and he said, this day this prophecy is fulfilled in your ears, they heard him and they understood him. The problem is that they didn't want what he said, and that's what Jesus means when he says that no one knows the Son except the Father. It's not an intellectual ignorance. It's a perception that moves the heart in the only right way a heart can respond to the truth of the gospel. To begin with, only the Father knew the true identity of Jesus as the Son of God. 
The hearts of all men would continue to not know this fact in that they would all reject him, except for the fact that the Father would intervene and give them to Jesus. God changes the hearts of men so that they will hear the gospel and they will believe the gospel and hear me, they will desire the object of the gospel and that is not just missing hell, not streets of gold, not a great life in this world. It's the person of Jesus. The, 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 the force of God moving on the human heart is to make the human heart actually desire something that the human heart by nature hates. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus in all his perfection and all his justice and all his ownership and all of his infinite greatness that we love him. That's the work of God on the human heart. This is what Jesus means when he says to Peter at his confession of him as the Messiah, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my Father who is in heaven. Had Peter never heard of the Messiah? Yeah, he heard of the Messiah. Had the man, Jesus, spoke of himself to Peter? Yes. Why did Peter perceive the truth of it so that it changed his heart toward the truth of it? Because the Father had revealed it to Peter. At the same time, no one can know the Father except he is revealed to them through the Son. Jesus tells his disciples in John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Now, obviously, when Jesus says that no one can know the Father unless he reveals him to them, he doesn't mean that a person can't know about God. He doesn't even mean that a person won't believe that God exists. Again, he means that we can't know God rightly unless we see the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ. The word for know here is epigenosko, and it means to become fully acquainted with or to perceive something. And it bears the idea of both, yes, a mental ascent, but even more strongly, fellowship with something or someone. Because the, the Father and the Son are one, no one can be said to know the Father or to have fellowship with Him unless they see His nature and His character in God the Son and they love what they see there. That's why Jesus told the Pharisees who knew a great deal about God, by the way. It's not that they didn't quote-unquote know God. They knew God in every mental way I think we could, every merely mental way I think we could probably place it. But he says to them, if God were your father, you would love me. Because if we love God, we love him in the person of Jesus Christ because in Jesus Christ, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He is the exact imprint of the nature of God the Father. He and the Father are one. You can't love one without the other. So when we say that God must enable a person to believe. We don't mean that he makes us void of all human characteristics or affection or desire. It's the opposite. He uses these things to get us to Jesus. 
Um, the fact is that if God didn't do this, nobody would ever want Jesus and nobody would ever come to Jesus. Jesus tells us this in John 6. Now just follow me as we're going to go through here for a minute. If you want to turn to John 6, you can. But in John 6 and verse 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And in verse 44, no one can come to me. Not won't come to me, no one can come to me. This is inability being expressed. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So all that the Father has predestined to belong to Jesus, all those, as Revelation 13 says, written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb, they will come to Jesus, but they can't unless the Father draws them to him. So what does it mean that the Father draws us to Jesus? Well, it's, it's an action on God's part. It's not passive. It's an action. Um, I've heard people try to get really cute with this and, and basically, I don't want to say lie, but be very ingenuous about what the word draw actually means. Um, the word from which we derive draw in the original language literally means to drag. And the idea is like you draw water out of a well. Now, Joe, I'm not as old as some people in the room, but... Uh, <laughs> But I have a good feeling that if we had an old-timey well with the bucket hanging down in it, um, me drawing water out of it would not be merely me reaching my head over saying, come on up, water, if you want to. I don't think that's what it looks like, right? No, it means we drag that water out of there with the bucket in the rope. There's an action there. That's exactly what this word means. Um, so how does God do this? Well, Jesus goes on to say in John 6, in verse 45, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So he says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him to me. So when the Father draws, we come. And everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes. So what does his drawing look like? Well, God teaches us the truth of who Jesus is, the truth of the gospel. When God, I'll use the word, drags someone to Jesus... He does so by teaching them the gospel in a way that they could not have grasped on their own. Again, why is it that a person can hear the gospel their entire life and it doesn't make a dent in them at all? They might say they believe it, they might go get baptized, they might do whatever, but really in their heart nothing's changed and they're going out and you know, five days a week or whatever, they're living for the devil and they try to kind of get their life right a little bit late Saturday night so they don't feel so condemned the next morning. And then Sunday morning, they try to act like they're an angel. And then Monday, they're right back into it. You know, why can they hear the gospel their entire life? Nothing happens. And then all of a sudden, it grips their heart in a new way and they're changed forever. What just happened there? It's that God taught that person the truth in that he made their heart perceive it really for the first time. They might have known the gospel. They might have been able to share the gospel. They might have been able to, in depth, explain the gospel. But they did not truly see themselves as they were in the gospel. And they did not truly perceive the person of Christ until that moment. When God drags a man to salvation, he doesn't bypass all his logic and all his emotions and all his will. 
Instead, he uses logic and emotions as the, the cords that he drags a man with. He doesn't bypass all our humanity when he brings us to salvation. He just uses the humanity that he created in us in the way that he chooses to use it to get us where he's predestined us to be. He gives that man the grace to truly fear the wrath of God. He stirs a sense of desperation within him. He brings a man to hate his sin and even hate the day that he was ever born. And he also opens the eyes of that man to see that Jesus is able and willing to save him. He, he shows him that all he now desires above everything else is found totally in the person of Jesus Christ. He drags him to Jesus by teaching him a new way so that this heart that could never truly desire Jesus on his own now longs for Jesus above everything else. And those of you that have had that happen in your heart and your life, I'm sure you can remember that you probably some of us in here especially those of us that were maybe saved a little later in life weren't saved at five or something like that when you came to Christ you had heard the gospel hundreds of times before and you knew it and you might have even thought you believed it but if you really looked at your life you're like no that's not I'm not what I claim to be if we're really being honest but then all of a sudden something happened right all of a sudden something happened and all those things that you had known and heard and been taught your entire life all came crashing in in one colossal moment and it arrested your soul. Now for some of us it was a more loving thing. For some of us we just saw the love of Christ and we saw the awesomeness of Jesus and you just were wooed to the cross uh, and it was a very sweet thing. For others it was maybe a more painful birth. It was more violent. Maybe you realized for the first times ever that you really were floating over the flames of hell and there was nothing holding you up but the mercy of God, that you deserved hell and wrath. You, you knew you were going to go there and there's nothing you could do about it. If God didn't just somehow choose that mercy on you that you didn't deserve, you were toast. And you ran to him for mercy and over time he changed your heart so that you trusted that he had given you that mercy. However it came about, those of you that are in Christ, you know what I'm talking about. Something changed. Something happened. And it was that God changed your heart. So all those who will ever come to Jesus are the ones that the Father has given to Him before the foundation of the world. They couldn't come to Him truly except that the Father drags them by teaching their heart and making them want Him. And when we understand it that way, in the context of what I've just described to you, then I think we may see verse 28 in a new light. And I say that because verse 28 is one of those coffee cup verses. It's one of those verses that we got in the little daily bread thing, you know, that your grandma got that little fake loaf of bread. You pull the little thing out, you look at it, stick it back down, and it's supposed to be real encouraging. And that's all fine and good. But I think it means more than we probably give it credit for meaning. In verse 28, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now when Jesus says, Come to me, I think we typically see this as a friendly invitation. And that's fine, but it's way more than that. It's not just a friendly invitation. Since we have been given to Jesus by the Father, since we belong to Him, come to me should be seen as not just an invitation, it's a command. He's ordering those who belong to him. He's ordering those for whom his blood was shed. You come to me. 
He's not asking us to come. Jesus is commanding all his people from wherever they are, whatever state they're in, no matter how wicked they are, no matter how broken they are, no matter where they live, what color they are, what language they speak, what socioeconomic level, he's saying, come to me. And again, who are those that are his? They're the ones who are weary from labor and they're heavy laden with their burdens. As we just said, it's the grace of God when we realize the laborious toil and uselessness of trying to attain salvation by our merit. Have you ever tried to do that? You ever, you remember a time in life where you would have never said this because we were all kind of born in the South and we all kind of know this is the wrong answer, but down in our psyche somewhere, we kind of felt like, okay, if I do good, God's going to like me more. If I do bad, God doesn't like me as much. Do you remember that? As John Piper said, when you have that idea, you're dead in the water. You're, you're dead in the water. You're sitting duck because you'll never be good. The only time you think God's happy with you then is when you lie to yourself and tell you you did something good when you really didn't. Because we we're, not, we're not good. And when you try to live that way, and if you try to live the way the Jews that Matthew's writing to live, where they thought they earned a place with God by keeping the festivals and by offering the right sacrifices and by dressing a certain way and associating with the right people, not associating with the wrong people and talking a, way, a certain way and giving a certain way. When you live that way, it's tiring. It will wear you out quick. You become a very hollow person. So that the wind could blow you over. Why? Because the only thing you got to stand on is your own self. And you are frail. And you are fragile. And so am I. And Jesus knows this. And it's his grace that we see that that's the situation we're in. Grace shows us the burden of our sin and the consequences that await us. Grace lets us feel the fatigue of trying to make our lives matter on our own or trying to make sense of this broken life. I think one of the most exhausting things, maybe about the American life, if not human existence across the world, is that we try to make our lives meaningful. We, we look at our lives and we look at our, you know, we, we got a psychological phenomenon that we, I think Americans are probably about the only ones rich enough to, to have this, but it's called a midlife crisis. And I'm not laughing at it. I think it's legitimate. I think that, you know, at some point we all kind of hit, so we hit a, uh, you know, a, a time in life where we kind of take stock in what we've accomplished versus what we thought we'd accomplished. And we're always kind of left feeling like we didn't really hit the mark and we're not going to. But don't we kind of live in a world? Don't we kind of raise in a culture? And haven't we kind of bought into the idea that, you know, we have to find some way of giving our life meaning like, you know, we, we want to work this really awesome job so that our life is important or we want a lot of money or maybe even do good things with our money so that when we're gone, people will remember us for having left a mark on the world or something like that. We, there's, a, there's an innate desire inside the human soul to have a meaningful existence. And we will try to find that meaningful existence in every single way we possibly can. And what Jesus is saying is that you have no meaningful existence outside of the existence that you were created for by God, and that's to know him and enjoy him. That's your meaningful existence. Anything outside of that, meaningless. Or as the Bible calls it, worthless. It's grace that shows us 
the futility of that. Grace makes us long for the rest that we can find only in Jesus. And when we become like children, knowing that our work is too small, that we can never attain salvation on our own, when we realize that our lives will never be what they should be on our own power and effort, and when we trust that Jesus will supply the rest that we need, we are those whom the Father has drawn to Jesus. He commands that we come and we must respond. And if you're hearing this and you're maybe a little anxious about the idea that maybe you're not one of those, if you have seen that, if the gospel has broken into your heart, you realize the depravity of who you are, you see the awesomeness of Christ, your need for Christ, you've run to him, you've called out to him, you've accepted him, you love him. No, you're one of them. It's a great thing. Know that you're one that the Father has given to the Son. What better gift could you be given than to be a love gift to Christ from the Father? Then this brings up the question as to why we should trust that Jesus will receive us and give us rest. How can those who have been awakened to the truth of their guilt before a holy God approach him when he bids come? How can we trust that he'll be merciful and not crush us under his wrath? Well, Jesus answers the question in verse 29 when he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. We should come to him and learn from him. We should come and trust that we'll receive what we need because as Jesus says this, we need to understand the picture here. He's not saying this as the God who appeared in smoke and lightning and rumbling from Mount Sinai in fearful judgment. If you remember the story in, in the Old Testament when God appeared on Mount Sinai and it was you know, a cloud of smoke and fire and thunder and lightning coming out so that, and, and, and he said, no one come and touch the mountain because you'll die. No animal touch the mountain because you'll die. All the people were what? Very afraid and none would approach it. In fact, they told Moses, you go tell God not to talk to us anymore because we're terrified. And that's what we deserve because of our sin. But this isn't how Jesus is making himself accessible here. He says this, he says, come to me, take my yoke, find your rest in me. And he says this, as God who is so sincere about saving his people and so gentle toward us that he would humiliate himself to the point of putting on flesh and giving himself as the sacrifice for our sins. I want you to get this mental picture. As, as children, when you were little, when we disobeyed and we got hurt, dad says, don't touch that, it'll burn you. What do we do? We reach out and grab it with both hands, right? Don't do that. It'll hurt you. And we do it anyway. We disobey and we get hurt because of our disobedience. We may not have felt like we could approach our father as he stood towering over us for fear of being punished for our disobedience, right? Anybody remember that feeling? You know you've done wrong. You're sitting here hurting. You need your mom or your dad to take care of you. You need your mom or dad to comfort you and fix whatever's wrong, but you're kind of scared to go tell them what you did because the burnt part on your hand might not be the only thing getting burnt here in a minute. Right? But what about when the dad 
sees the child in pain. He knows they disobeyed. He sees the child in pain. And he gets down on his knees on the child's level. And he opens his arms up and he says, come here, come to me. So he can embrace the child, console the child, heal the wounds. Jesus is commanding us to look at him and see what point he's willing to go to for our salvation. He commands us to come to him because he has first come to us to suffer in our place. And if that's you tonight, if, you, if, you're, if you're wore out by life, if you know that you know, your, your sins weigh heavy on you, if you know that, um, that your life is not meaningful like it should be in a biblical way, if you know you're not where you should be with Christ, that's the picture that I believe Christ wants you to have. He's not, at this point, He is not the God of judgment who's ready to dole out wrath. He's the God who came and did more than got, get down on His knees. He got down in the dirt with us. In fact, he humbled himself to a place you and I have never been. He put himself beneath us in some ways. He humbled himself even to death on a cross, a criminal's death, so that you and I would know and we trust no matter what, no matter where we are, no matter what's against us, no matter how much sin we bring, he's inviting us to come for our good, not for wrath, but for mercy. When we see him that way, we can always trust that he stands ready to accept us and meet us in whatever need we have because he's proven his love for us. And we must come and learn from him of the Father because the Father shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Just as grace opens our eyes to the burden of our sin, grace also opens our eyes to see Jesus as he has revealed himself, the living, breathing appeal to men to come to God and be saved. Now, how do we know if we've truly been given to Jesus by the Father? How do we know if we've trusted Jesus and obeyed him and come to him? We know when we put on a new yoke. You know, this idea of the yoke is a picture of placing an ox in a yoke so that he can pull a plow. And coming to Jesus means accepting him as not just our Savior, but as our Lord and surrendering to his service. And we don't need to fear this. Um, Jesus assures us in verse 30. We'll just close with this very quickly. In verse 30, he says, For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This yoke of serving Christ is easy because we aren't under the fear of failure. When you're in Christ, you're not under the fear of failure anymore. When you were trying to save yourself, you were under the fear of failure because if you failed, you were toast. The Bible tells us in Romans 8, 1, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. This yoke is easy because unlike the yoke of sin, working under his yoke doesn't lead to destruction. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. This yoke is easy because of the nature of his commands. 1 John 5, 3 tells us that his commandments are not burdensome. Now, if you've tried to live the Christian life very long, you might say, wait a minute, hold on, you're going to explain that. Because living the Christian life is not easy, is it? Okay, some of us need to try it. Nobody said anything. Living the Christian life is not easy. It takes sacrifice, yes? It takes discipline, yes? Discipline yourself for godness. Deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow after me. Be killing your sin. It is an ongoing war with self. It is not 
easy in the way that we like to think about easy, but it's not burdensome. His commands are summed up, I think, in 1 John 3.23. He says, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Now, believing on Christ truly and loving others takes, like we said, sacrifice and it takes effort, but it isn't burdensome. Why? Because of the help that we receive. John writes in the very next verse, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. When we come to Christ and take on his yoke, we also receive God, the spirit as our helper in living the Christian life. We're not doing it on our own anymore. We're doing it with the help of God as his power working in you to cause you to will and to work for his good pleasure. And finally, this yoke is not a burden because our hearts have been changed. And this is what I mean. Before, um, you know, even if we were raised in a very religious kind of setting, you know, we kind of knew all the do's and all the don'ts and all that kind of stuff. Um, we might have tried to obey God's commands out of some misplaced belief that we could earn favor with God, but we didn't really want to, did we? No, we didn't really want to. In fact, before coming to Christ, I remember a time before coming to Christ where I knew my sin was wrong and I would even try to go long stretches of time um, trying to avoid or trying to not do some of the things I was drawn to do. But down deep, I knew that really I wished that God didn't hate what I really wanted to do because I wanted my sin. I just didn't want to go to hell for it. But something changed and that's different. No longer no longer love the sin that I used to love. <laughs> Be honest with you, now sometimes it terrifies me. No longer love the sin I used to love. I hate it because I see that it's going to cost me. No longer love the sin that I used to love because times I get a very clear picture of, wait a minute, I did that selfishly, and Jesus, you had to suffer because I was just being selfish and rebellious. There's a lot of reasons why I no longer love the things that I used to love. A lot of reasons why I now hate and am hopefully growing to hate more and more the things that God also hates. Now it's different. Obedience for the believer is not forced labor that we resent. It's compulsory, but it's also something we want to do. We want to be obedient. We know it's best for us. We know his commands are right. We understand that obedience um, alleviates punishment. We're not disciplined whenever we don't disobey. We see that obedience promises reward. You know, we want to obey because we now love the one who first loved us. And the yoke of Christ is light and easy for the believer because even though obedience is not always easy and we're often bad at it, we want to obey. Our heart's been changed. So let's meditate on the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ. Let's, let's do this. Let's take stock of our own lives. Questions we should ask. Have we come to him? You're sitting in this place, you have to ask the question, have I truly come to Christ? Do I just know a whole lot about him, but I haven't really perceived the gospel and hasn't really changed my heart? Are we under the yoke of his service? Is God changing my life? Do I have a desire to obey? I'm not saying you're good at it. I'm saying you want to be good at it. And if we see that we're struggling to carry that yoke as we should, his command is still to come to him to come to him and receive grace to be the obedient servant 
that we've been reborn to be. Jesus is our merciful Lord, and he stands ready to give us whatever grace we need so that we can serve him and we can daily find our rest in him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you for your mercy. And Lord, I pray that you were glorified by this. Lord, I pray that your word will not return to you empty. I pray that it will accomplish that for which you uh, sent it forth to accomplish. Um, Lord, help us understand your, your sovereignty in saving men that don't deserve to be saved. Lord, help us understand your mercy and your grace and your love in ensuring um, such an awesome salvation that we don't deserve through the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us grow in love for him, Lord. Father, help us. Please give us grace to see our, our, our needs still and give us grace to see how emphatic Jesus is to, to, to bless us and to help us. Lord, help us rely on the power of your Holy Spirit and be led by your truth um, every single step of, of every single day so that we can be those people who are proving to, to have taken on the yoke of Christ and, and to, uh, to labor in such a way that it brings joy into our hearts and brings glory to your name. Lord, if anybody's here, uh, that, if anybody's here that doesn't know you, Lord, I pray that you would just bring them to salvation. I pray that you would drag them to salvation. God, give them no peace um, in their soul until they're they're safely in Christ. Anybody listening to this anywhere else, I pray you do the same thing, Father. And I pray that you'll be glorified in the lives of everyone that um, that hears your word and uh, receives it rightly. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen.